Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you once again. For those of you who don't know who I am, uh, my name is Lauren Meisner, and I had the privilege of being sandwiched in between the O. Henry chapter of this church, which was a long and fruitful ministry, and the Rusty Oxide chapter. And uh, it's good to be back with you this morning. And I was quite surprised when Rusty asked me to speak on this particular Sunday and said it was his first Sunday back. And I thought, and you're not chafing at the bit to be speaking? But then I realized it must have come from the CMT who realized there's no way he could limit himself to 40 minutes on his first week back. So I'm giving you warning, pack a lunch next week. Rusty is back. I'm sure you do. It is good to be with you. Let me just give you a really, really short summary of what's happened in our lives since we were here. And it's hard to believe it's already six years ago. Um, the breaks have come on in terms of our family. Since we were here, there's only been an additional two grandchildren. So we are at 15 and waiting for the next generation. And we're in no hurry for that, um, but that's where we're at. I still have the privilege of being uh, involved in a variety of ministries. I left the BGC, as many of you know, about two and a half years ago. Uh, but I have the privilege of working with the Associated Gospel Churches, uh, seven of their churches in Manitoba. I do that on a part-time, uh, quarter-time basis. I'm also with a ministry called MentorLink, which allows me to continue to invest in the lives of many young pastors and ministry leaders in particular. And that has given me the privilege of doing some training with them overseas in the country of Ethiopia as well, which I really appreciate it, although it was a stretch. And then we're still involved at City Church, uh, a sister church to New Life, uh, when we are there, I'll sometimes say to Esther, man, I haven't seen so-and-so in a long time. And she says, yeah, that's because you've been missing. And I go, oh, right, it's not them, it's me. <clears throat> but it is good to be with you again this morning. Am I the only one, or are there others of you who sometimes feel that you want to watch less and less of national and international news with its bombardment of depressing news. <clears throat> Do you, like I, sometimes feel that the bad guys are gaining ground and seemingly winning the war in our culture? If you feel that way, all the more reason for us to turn to the source of our good news. We need regular infusions of the Word of God that sets the record straight and gives us the sovereign, eternal perspective of our God in our world. And we, we need to be reminded of His perspective in our increasingly chaotic culture. So that brings us back once again to the book of Psalms, which I was told you have been going through this particular summer, and I was more than glad to fit into that particular series. 
And the psalm we are going to consider together this morning is actually a timely reminder in light of our contemporary culture's blatant and public um, I have to read my notes are too small. Our culture's blatant and public parading of anti-God values and behavior. And it seems that every year it becomes just a little more defiant. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I would invite you, though the text will be on the screen, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 2. And before we consider that Psalm together, would you join with me in prayer? God, a number of times already this morning, we have engaged you in prayer, and it's more than ritual. It's a reminder of the fact that we really do need you. We are grateful that you are here with us, not because you live in a designated place at a set address, but because you are alive in the lives of those of us who have put our trust in your son, Jesus Christ, as our savior and as our Lord. And Jesus, you reminded us that the Holy Spirit would teach us all things and remind us of what you said. Your word tells us that these words that were penned by the prophets and the apostles of old were infused with the life of your spirit. Spirit of Jesus Christ who lives within us. May we hear what you are saying to us through these timeless, life-giving, life-transforming words that we encounter in this second psalm this morning. We commit our minds. We ask that you would allow us to set aside the distractions. We commit our hearts to receiving what you want to say and ultimately we need to be ready to commit our behaviors to live out the truths that we will encounter for the sake of and in the name of Jesus Christ in whose likeness we are being transformed in his name we pray amen let me tell you a little bit in terms of general observations about Psalm 2 it is a revelatory, is true of all of the Psalms, but in particular, it is a revelation of God's sovereignty versus humanity's pursuit of independence. What we are told in the Psalm could not be known simply through a survey of human history because it gives God's perspective on the whole picture from the end game as well as going back to the beginning. The author is not identified at the beginning of the psalm as is true in some of the other psalms. Although it is attributed to David in Acts 4.25, all of the psalms are attributed to David often when quoted in the New Testament. But it is quite likely that David may have penned this psalm. It is a messianic psalm in terms of its ultimate fulfillment is found in the son that God promised to David who would sit on the throne forever, that promise being recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So we need to keep that in mind. 
when we read it about this king who is appointed, that ultimately that finds its fulfillment in the son of David, the son of God, Jesus Christ. And lastly, by way of general uh, observation, it is an encouragement to the often maligned and persecuted people of God. And we sometimes don't feel that in our somewhat protected but less so Canadian culture in which we live. It was a Saturday morning in mid-May and I was enjoying a breakfast with a group of men we had met earlier in a city called Halaba in south, south, middle south Ethiopia. And our conversation at the restaurant was going quite well until a man with a cap and dress, which would suggest he was from a Muslim background, walked into the restaurant and the men just immediately hushed and said, we need to move this meeting outside right now. It's a reality. And they said he is a well-known religious leader. We suffer active persecution in the city of Halaba. In the last 10 to 15 years, three Christian churches have been burnt down. There is no justice because the majority of the civic leaders are from that particular religion. When we asked what we can pray for on their behalf as we remember them, without any hesitation, they said, pray that we would be courageous in the face of active persecution. This psalm is an encouragement to the people of God who are facing or who will face increasing hostility because of their stand with the one true God. <clears throat> The psalm breaks up into four segments, each of three verses. If you know anything about poetry, and I know very little, only this, that it sort of has a pattern to it. Well, the pattern of this psalm is A, B, B, A, and I'm not talking about the singing group ABBA, okay? I'm talking about there's this theme in the first three verses, and we come back to that theme in the last three verses, and in between, there are two expressions in verses four through six, coupled with seven through nine, that are a different theme. So think of it as four scenes in a play. Let me read through the entirety of the psalm and then go back and make comments on those four segments. I'm reading from the ESV. You can follow along on the screen if you so please. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, and then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, this is actually being spoken by the one who has been appointed as king, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Verses 1 through 3. The posture of the nations in general throughout history evidenced many times over. They are in turmoil, raging, chafing, plotting together. In fact, the verse that I, verb that is used there in verse 1 is the same word that's used in Psalm 1 verse 2 when it talks about meditating. They are consulting together intentionally, slowly considering how they might overthrow the one who is sovereign over them. This is not haphazard. It is not spontaneous. They have put thought into this. The nations and the peoples and the kings of the earth and the rulers together take counsel. And notice the target of their rebellion. It is against Jehovah God, the God of the covenant who has revealed himself through Moses in particular. It is against his anointed one that he is set to rule on his behalf. This is a targeted rebellion. And it has a declaration of independence in their wrath and in their futile planning. And that is this expressed in verse 3. Let us together burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Who is there referring to? It's referring to the constraint and restriction they feel by a God who has established himself as sovereign over the earth. And they have decided together in their wisdom that they don't want to live under the sovereign rule of God. They want to be independent. By the way, one of the books sitting on my shelf that I've picked up for summer reading, and you may want to do the same. Uh, the bonus to me is that it's actually written by a Manitoban by the name of Carl Teichrobe called Game of Gods. And he documents the history of this movement in our own culture, going back even into 18th, 19th century philosophy, but in particular talking about its roots and the growing spread of this movement in the 20th and 21st century. The subtitle of his book is The Temple of Man in the Age of Reenchantment. This declaration of independence started in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve decided maybe they would be better going it alone and not submitting to God's decree to them that they could enjoy all of the garden except one tree. And that was the beginning of independence. We see it quite clearly in the account of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. 
But over and over again, we see it throughout history. We see it in the Assyrians. We see it in the Babylonians. We see it in the Egyptians with their false gods. And we can see it in modern history, how God has toppled once great dynasties and powers. And by the way, this rebellion and declaration of independence finds its climax in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 4 and listen to how Peter describes what is going on with a reference to this psalm. In Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 23, it says when they were released from prison, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, submission to his sovereignty, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, there's that reference to David as having penned these words, said by the Holy Spirit, and then he quotes from this very psalm. Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now here's his interpretation of how that has come to fruition in his own age. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. Now notice there the recognition of the nations, the Gentiles and the Jews together, plotting how can we eliminate this one who claims to be the king and wants us to be subjected to his authority over our lives. So they understood what Jesus was about. He was more than just a good moral teacher. He was God calling for their submission. But notice also the recognition of the sovereignty of God to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So even in the greatest displays of independence, God's sovereignty is still in the background. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So Peter is saying that this declaration of independence, this council together of the nations, came to a climax in the action they took against the son of David, the Messiah, the anointed one. That's the first act, the posture of the nations and rulers. True not just in David's day and prior to David's day, but all through history, even up until today. In fact, you can make a good case for it, as Carl Teichrope does in his book, that actually it's increasing in intensity. And it is marking our culture. Many of the things that we see, there's an agenda. Some of you are going to think, and at one time I used to think this is a conspiracy theory in terms of a move toward a global government. Carl Teichrope does a good job of saying, no, we can document that this is actually happening in our world and affecting our North American culture. Scenes two and three. So that was A, this is B1 and then B2. It is the posture and the reaction of God. Verses four through six. 
The one who sits in the heavens, the sovereign God who created the world and the nations, sits in the heavens and he, <laughs> he laughs. And he holds them in derision. Do you know what derision is? It's contempt combined with mockery. Have you ever been the brunt of derision where you're doing something seriously and somebody sits there and they go, <laughs> oh, you're serious, are you? And they mock you. Do you know what that feels like? It's incredibly humiliating. Not that we can imagine God, and I hesitate to even give this, but I, I sort of imagine God sitting in the heavens, and as he sees the nations chafing against his sovereign rule, I imagine him saying, are you serious? Really? Really? One of the things I've enjoyed about being a grandparent is wrestling with my little grandchildren. And sometimes they think they've got grandpa in, in a hold. And I go, oh, you think you've got him now? And then in the strength of a grandpa, you can overcome their weak hold on you. And that's kind of the picture that's behind verse 4. The sovereign God who sits in the heavens laughs and holds them in derision, but it doesn't end there. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, which so often are downplayed in our culture because God is a God of love and mercy and grace. And he is all of those but not at the cost of his being a God who takes sin and rebellion seriously. But thank God his wrath and his fury are tempered with his mercy and his patience. And out of that, he then makes this declaration, verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion. Jerusalem was referred to Zion as the place where God put his presence physically here on earth, the dwelling place of God amongst his people here on earth, my holy hill. Now I want you to see the irony of this. Here are all of the nations and rulers on this side, numbering in the hundreds of thousands or in the case of today in the billions God is in heaven observing this rebellion against his sovereignty. And he says, oh, here's my answer. And he chooses one. I have set my king, singular. You come with your multitudes, numbering in the hundreds of millions and billions. Here's my answer. Him my anointed one. What a stark contrast. I have set my king, the one promised to David, predicted in 2 Samuel chapter 7. A clear reference to Jesus. Friends, however it might look to us at the moment, with the defiant declaration of independence from God, 
This is the revealed reality. That's why I said it has to be revelatory because you don't come to this conclusion by human reason. By human reason, it would seem that the billions stacked against God are prevailing. Only revelation could tell us that the reality is the one true God has established his king against all nations and rulers in anticipation of the final showdown of history which is given to us symbolically at the end of our revelation in the book of Revelation. Second part, scene three, verses seven through nine. So this is still focusing upon the sovereign God's response, but the words are put in the mouth of the one who has been set as king. Because he says, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. So this is the appointed king that is speaking. He is the son of God. It's interesting, unless you wonder, am I stretching things by suggesting it's Jesus Christ? That phrase, you are my son, was spoken by God the Father on at least two occasions in the life of Jesus Christ. On the occasion of his baptism, when the Holy Spirit came from heaven and the voice said, you are my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And it was also spoken at the time of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Today I have begotten you, not in the sense of beginning of time, but in the sense of I have given you this particular assignment as my son to be my appointed king. And this is the promise that comes with that appointment, verses 8 and 9. The father says to his son, all you need to do is ask of me, and I will make these nations who are rebelling against me, who are threatening to throw off what they consider to be the shackles of bondage because of my sovereignty, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession, and you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Often those verses, in particular verse 8, is used as a promise for worldwide evangelization. And there's some legitimacy to that because we are told in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, we are given all authority to go and take the good news of Jesus Christ and make disciples to all nations, to the ends of the earth. But if you read it in the historical context of the writing, that is not the primary intent of the appointed son being given the nations. The intent is that he should bring them into subjugation and squash their insubordination. Look at the word picture of verse 9. You will break them with a rod of iron. That's kind of like taking a strong stick and smashing a clay vessel into many small pieces. And you will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It is a promise that the sovereign God ultimately will prevail through his appointed son, Jesus Christ. That is the primary intent of that promise. 
I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly hopeful when it feels like the bad guys are winning. That the end of the story awaits us and we are told very clearly that in the end, the triumphant one is Jesus Christ. If you haven't read the book of Revelation and you're disputing that final conclusion, maybe you want to review it, reread it, and remind yourselves of who is ultimately sovereign. In fact, that verse, verse 9, is used twice in the book of Revelation. I won't take the time to turn there, but in Revelation 12, verse 5, and 19, verse 15, that very text is used to describe the prevailing sovereignty of the anointed king, Jesus Christ, in the end times over the nations. And now in the fourth scene, the author of the psalm goes back to the focus of the first three verses. And he addresses and extends an invitation. This is much more an invitation than it is an ultimatum. Now, therefore, who is addressed, O kings and rulers of the earth? The very ones that were rising up in rebellion identified in verse 2. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. In your meditation to overthrow the sovereign God, pause and reflect what you're actually trying to do. Be wise, exercise wisdom, and be warned. Kind of the words of the wisdom, the, the terminology of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament we find in Proverbs. Be wise, O kings, and be warned, O rulers of the earth. And out of that wisdom, and out of that reflection and warning, this is the appropriate response. You really should serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And you sub should subject yourself to the king. That's the idea behind kiss the sun. And we've all seen these medieval pictures where the man kneels and stoops before the ruler and he takes his hand and kisses his hand. That's the picture here. Kiss the sun. Submit to him so that you appease his anger and you not perish in the way because his wrath is quickly kindled. It's not like wet firewood. It's like dry tinder. Kings and rulers of the earth who think yourself so intelligent, who think you are God and you don't need a God outside of yourself, that you can take care of this earth. And it always amazes me when I hear, read the history and I hear of this particular movement of independence, say, don't you read your history books? how bad your track record is when you take things into your own hands? 
Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. I made reference to the fact again, I am so grateful that God's fury and anger, which is reserved for those who do not submit to the Son of God, if we believe in the Son, we are spared from the wrath of God. If we do not believe in the Son, we will be the recipients of the wrath of God. John chapter 3, in the midst of that wonderful verse, for God so loved the world, read to the end of the chapter. That's exactly what it says. It's an invitation for them. Lay aside your rebellion and your insubordination and submit to the Son. And then this wonderful promise at the end that actually picks up on the theme of the first psalm, the blessing of God, blessed is the man who, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Rather than resist submission to the sovereign God, God's favor is toward those who find their refuge in him. Is that not, in fact, the good news that Jesus declared? And that Peter and Paul and the apostles in the New Testament believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved, you will be delivered, you will find refuge. So how wonderful that this psalm ends with that invitation. I want to just draw a few applications in closing. Historical records substantiate both this trend of the nations and God's humbling of the once mighty. The powerful Pharaoh. God humbled him and his troops were drowned in the Red Sea. The arrogant Nebuchadnezzar, I am God, I am the greatest, look at my empire. And God humbled him, and you read the book of Daniel, and he came to that place of recognizing, I am nowhere near as great as I thought, and he acknowledges the sovereignty of God. But what about all those despots of the last centuries? the Hitlers and the Idi Amins and the Stalins and the Lenins, who at one time were undefeatable. Where are they now? And of course there is the eschatological, the end times understanding of human history, being assured of who triumphs when history is over and only God's son will be the victor because he's already been predictably declared the triumphant one. But also, there's application of this psalm to our present lives. And I don't think it is coincidental that the very next psalm, and I'm just going to kind of whet your appetites to keep reading, but look at the very next psalm that is penned, ascribed to David. O Lord, verse, reading from Psalm 3, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Look at verse 6 
I will not be afraid of many thousands who have set themselves against me all around. It is quite possible that David penned the psalm when he was being attacked by his son Absalom and the thousands that he had gathered together with him to destroy and to defeat his father. The numbers are vast. They are mocking him that he will find no refuge, no salvation in God. But look at David's response in verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You are my glory and the one who lifts up my head. And I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. And I lay down and slept and I woke again for the Lord sustained me. And so I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. There is relevance to the truth of this psalm, not just in the end times, not just in the broad sweep of history, but in our personal lives. When you and I feel overwhelmed by however we identify our foes, David says you can take this psalm and you can find your refuge in the God whose singular presence is stronger and more secure than any and all foes that will align against you. And, and, and I find this almost like unbelievable. So David darkness comes upon you. You know surrounding you are tens of thousands of the enemy possibly being spearheaded by your own son Absalom, and you have the audacity to lay down and sleep? Well, yeah, because God's staying awake. He's going to take the night watch. When the morning comes and the light comes and I see them, I'll, I'll join the fray. But in the meantime, I am on the winning side. Friends, those of us who have put our faith in God's appointed Son, Jesus Christ, our salvation, our safety, and our security are not found in the numbers that associate with us against the nations and the rulers who are chafing at the bit to overthrow God. No, our safety, salvation, and security are found in humble dependence on God. In submission, not in insubordination. May God remind us of his true, eternal, always relevant word and whatever it is that we face this coming week. And so God, we ask that you would remind us by your spirit of the truths that we have heard together this morning. And we invite you to be a part of our final expressions of worship this morning. In the name of the anointed, appointed Son, our King Jesus, we pray. Amen.